My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. of today's sermon is living like God's children. And here's the main idea of this passage. Because we have been adopted as God's children, we will imitate our Father by pursuing holiness in our lives. Because we've been adopted as God's children, we will imitate our Father by pursuing holiness in our lives. Now, I believe if I do my job this afternoon, um, you'll walk away today agreeing with me that, that's exactly, that that is exactly what Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 is about. That's what we're aiming for today. So with that, let me go ahead and pray. Just ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you that you are our Father if we have trusted in Christ. Thank you that you are shaping us into the image of your son. Thank you that when you commanded, be holy as I am holy, you also provided the means by which we actually do that. And in fact, there is no other way we can be holy as you are holy, apart from the work of your spirit in us. So spirit, would you come? Would you be in this place, in this moment, God? Would you speak through the words that I say? Would you convict our hearts? Would you convince us of the truth? And would you change us? May we walk out of here looking more like you, and less like our old selves when we leave this place today. We need your help. Amen. Amen. Well, early one summer morning when I was about uh, nine or ten years old, my grandpa, he came, he came to pick me up. We were going to take a little road trip. And I remember this. I remember this very vividly, right? Like we got in the car and I remember driving for what felt like an eternity. It was only like two hours. Like I know that now, but when I was like 10, two hours in a car is a long time. I remember just sipping my sweet tea from McDonald's as we're passing like field after field, right? In, in Illinois and then Indiana. And we finally get to the exit an exit with no gas station, by the way. That's where we're at, okay? Like there was not even a gas station. All, all I could see was like a, a grain bin. That's it. And the rest is cornfields. And, and we pull off the exit and we drive down this country road and we pull into this little parking lot and there's like a visitor center in front of us. There's behind us is an open field and one flagpole. And we get out of the car, we walk across this field and we walk down into the woods. And as we're walking on the path, it's like a dirt path, mind you. There's, there's no gravel anywhere, right? Like this is a dirt path in the woods. There's this little roped off area and there's a tombstone. And it says, Nancy Hanks Lincoln. We were at the boyhood home of Abraham Lincoln, which is in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. And I just, I remember this day, right? Like we walked through the woods and they had, you know, like eventually once you walk far enough, they have like this open field. And if you've ever been to these historic places, they always have these log cabins that have been like, they're not original, right? Like they're rebuilt and they have these people like reenacting what life was like and 1840, whenever Abraham Lincoln lived there. And um, then we went into the visitor center, you know, and we, there are all of these interesting things about how people died and, and like all the different way, things that could kill you if you lived in the woods uh, in the middle of Indiana in 1840. And um, the day ended actually with us going to what's called the Lincoln Amphitheater. This is a real place, right? This outdoor theater. And there was just this reenactment of Abraham Lincoln's life. And, you know, this guy gets up there and he's got the fake beard and everything and he gives the Gettysburg Address and there's just dramatic music and all this stuff. And I I just vividly remember all of these things. And, you know, the question that I ask (laughs) when I'm reflecting on it is, why did my grandpa do this? 
You know, like, why, why did my grandpa think it was a good idea to take a 10-year-old boy to the middle of nowhere to look at a tombstone and some dirt? You know, did he just, like, did he just think, like, oh, I love history, and, and I just want an excuse to go to this place, right? So let's, let's say we're going to take Trevor on a trip. You know, was he just trying to, to get something out of it for himself? Like, why, why did he think this was a good idea to bring me along? Well, of course, you guys know the answer. Because you probably had parents who did things like this with you or grandparents or somebody in your life who, who did something like this. And you look back and you go, what exactly was that about? No, my, my grandpa took me on this trip, right, not because he wanted to get something out of it. And in fact, I tell the story, and it's kind of funny the way that I tell it, but in reality, I wasn't bored that day. Right? It was actually very interesting. I was fascinated by what I saw and what I learned. On the surface, you would think that no 10-year-old wants to do that. But of course, like, it's one of my most cherished childhood memories. Why? Because my grandpa gave me a great gift that day, actually. He gave me the gift of the love of history, a gift that he already had and he wanted to share with me. Because he loves history and he loves me, he thought it would be a good idea to take me on a little road trip to the middle of nowhere. Because he wanted to share in his joy and love of history with me. It's a great act of love, actually, to share the things that we love with those that we love. So when you walk into my home, and this is, I, I'm not, this is not hyperbole, okay? <laughs> like, my wife will tell you, this is for real. When you walk into my home and I'm sitting there on my couch with a big book about this thick and on the side of it it says the works of Jonathan Edwards or John Owen or the sermons of Charles Spurgeon, you can know that actually my grandpa is a great part of the reason why I'm reading that book, why I have that love and that passion. He gave me that gift and I'll cherish it for the rest of my life. Now before we get into this text today, I want us to understand something that's so important. In fact, the way that we interpret the rest of the texts hinges on how we understand verse 1. Verse 1. Here, I, I don't actually think I have the verse. Do I have it? Okay, great. Um, here's verse 1 again. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God. Be like God. Do what God does. It's a pretty bold command. And what does it mean? Why, Paul? What is it exactly that God wants from us? Is he just trying to force his strict, joyless moral standards upon us? God never wants us to have fun again. He wants us to be bored. He wants to drive us out to the middle of nowhere and say, here, look, a tombstone. Right? Is that, is that what he wants? He wants us to perform for him in some way so that way he'll be, he'll be pleased with us if we, if we just do the right things. Right? Like we're, like we're the court jester and he wants us to put on a show. No, that's, that's not what God wants from you or me. Right? It's worded as a command, but actually it's, it's an invitation. Just like my grandfather so loved me, and wanted to share in joy with me, God, as your father, wants to share with you something he loves above everything else in the world. Holiness. His holiness. His moral purity. And I heard this quote a few weeks ago, and I think it's true. It, God doesn't want holiness from you. He wants holiness for you. And I've been reflecting on that, actually, for the last I don't even know, two months since I heard that quote. And what I've concluded is that it's true, but it actually doesn't go far enough. God doesn't just want holiness for you, as if it's some vague idea that he's hoping you'll achieve. That he's hoping you'll figure it out and you'll get there. And he's far off watching you. Like, oh, I want holiness for you. Like you want your kids to succeed or you want whatever to happen in the future. So it's true, God does want holiness for us, but it actually, he actually goes even further than that. Not only does he want holiness for you, he wants to give the gift of holiness to you, and he wants to share in holiness with you. I think I have that up there. 
God wants to give the gift of holiness to you. He wants to make you holy so that he can share in the joy of holiness with you. Just ponder that for a moment. If you take nothing else that we talk about today with you the rest of this week, take that. That is life changing. God doesn't want you to perform. That's not why he wants you to be holy. It's not what that means. No, he wants to give you a great gift. He wants to, to share in the enjoyment of that gift with you. In finding holiness, we find the greatest treasure of all, God himself. Why? Because all holiness emanates from him and find its ultimate fulfillment in him. And thus we find the joy, the satisfaction, and the rest our souls long for. Joy and holiness are not two different things. They are one and the same. And in compelling you to be holy, God is inviting you to the life you were created to experience. It's not oppressive or unloving. It's actually the greatest gift he could give us. And as children of God, then, we mimic our father, as all children do. Right? We want to be just like our dad. But because we're just children, we need help. We need help understanding what this imitation of God looks like. If, you just, if I just say, imitate God, and all right, that's it, go. I'm sure what, that we would come up with some very creative things. But we need help actually understanding how to do that. Because we know that there are ways that we cannot, and we actually should not, try to imitate God. Because he's God, and we're not. Right? We're not omnipotent. We're not all-knowing. We're not creator or sustainer. We're not perfect as he is. So what is he aiming at here? That's why in verses 3 to 21, the rest of the passage, Paul goes on to describe what imitating God looks like. Imitate God. And here's what that means. And you might have had a moment in your childhood where your parent or the adult in your life, right, someone in your family, like your grandparent or somebody like that said something like this. You're a Johnston, and Johnstons are not quitters. You ever have a parent say something like that to you? You're a Johnston, and Johnstons don't do that. Right? And saying something like that, your parent was defining for you what being a part of your family meant for your identity, and thus for the way you presented yourself to the world, how you lived as a result of that. Now, you're a Johnston. You don't quit. You don't give up. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He's saying, you're in God's family now. And in God's family, we, Ephesians 5, 3 through 21. <laughs> we'll get there. But remember the main idea. Because we've been adopted as God's children, we are his children. As all children do, we imitate. We imitate our father by pursuing holiness in our lives. Are you living like a child of God? imitating your father in holiness. I want to offer you three tests for your own life from Ephesians 5, 3 through 21 that'll answer that question for you. Okay, let's do it. And the first test is this. Are you living like a saint? Are you living like a saint? Now, we've talked about what a saint is, right? We'll recap here in a second. But that's the first thing that Paul points out. Look again at verses three and four. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, we'll get to those in a minute, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then he goes on in verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Just grab onto those words, as is proper among the saints or out of place. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Paul uses the word saint, which in Greek just means holy one. That's what saint means. I don't know why, how, where the word saint came from. We could do the whole origin of the word and figure out why do we use that word. But in reality, the Greek word is holy one or holy ones if it's in the plural. And he's, what he's saying is, he's, he's using this to describe what a child of God is like. Don't miss the connection. He says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And this, this, and this are not proper among saints. In other words, 
That's an interchangeable title, wouldn't you say, right? Or at least a clarifying the identity. What is God's child? It's a saint. It means his holy one. And in Paul's mind, there's a certain code of conduct that is appropriate for a saint and certain behaviors that are improper or out of place for someone bearing that title. You see the logic that he's using. And this, this makes a lot of sense, given what the word saint is and what it implies. If God's children are his saints, that means they're his holy ones. That's what the word means. Therefore, they live in a manner that is reflective of that title. Holy ones, that's describing what the ones are like. Holy. I'm not trying to give you a grammar lesson here. I'm just saying it's that simple. Holy ones live in a holy way. That's what makes them holy. Therefore, they live in a manner that is reflective of that. The true mark of someone who has been adopted by God is growth in holy living. It's a holy direction, not holy perfection. Don't miss that. If you're despairing right now, don't miss that. It's a holy direction, not holy perfection. Is your life marked by this kind of trend, a trend toward being more and more like Jesus? That's what a Christian is. Someone being shaped into the image of Christ. And practically, Paul tells us what this holiness or proper behavior is by telling us what it isn't. So look again at verse 3 in a different way. He mentions three things, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. The first two are often linked together in Paul's mind. They offer a broad category, which includes all kinds of illicit sexual behavior. I'm not going to list those here, but you can imagine, right? In word, thought, or deed. This is everything from the lustful thought to the most extreme taboo behavior you can think of. It covers the whole spectrum. And I don't think we're surprised by this, are we? I mean, I don't think anyone's like, Paul, why sexual immorality is the first thing you go to, right? Sexual immorality is often at the forefront of Paul's mind. When addressing moral purity in the church, and why did I say it like that? In the church, <laughs> because frankly, it is and was, and has always been one of the primary expressions of human rebellion against God. That's not new. We think it's new. We think that we live in this world that is just full of sexual immorality. That was Paul's world too. But he goes on, and if you're tempted to think, oh, Paul is just talking about sexual sin here. That's all he means to say. Hold on just a second. Do you see the third one that he mentions? It feels almost out of place when you read it. You expect him to say, like, sexual immorality or impurity or crude talking, which he does mention. But all of a sudden, he turns to what? Covetousness. What? Covetousness. What does that have to do with anything Paul, this is, this is greed or jealousy. This is an inordinate desire to have what belongs to someone else. That's what covetousness is. So why are these two things connected? Well, think about it. Sexual sin is actually a form of covetousness. Right? We desire something that is not ours to have. We desire to do something that's not ours to do. It's out of bounds. Right? It's a desire out of place. And this connection here in Paul's mind tells us that this isn't, the consequences are certainly different, but in essence, it's not actually that different from wanting someone's house or their car or their stuff or wanting power or position or authority. These are all desires. And we act on those desires. And that's, that is covetousness. And in fact, the problem goes even deeper than this. It's not just coveting. If you look in verse 5, did you catch this too? Paul is, this passage is full of Paul just throwing in these things and you're like, wait, hold on a second. Explain to me what that means. He says, for you may be sure of this, and he repeats them, right? For everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetousness or covetous, that word is actually hard to say, or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ of God, an idolater. But wait a second. Coveting is the ninth and tenth commandment. Idolatry is the first and second commandment. I'm confused, Paul. Aren't they different things? But someone whose life is marked by covetousness, whatever mode that takes on, whatever desire that is, is actually an idolater, according to Paul. How so? Let's, let's follow the logic here. Idolatry 
is the worship of anything other than God. That's pretty simple, easy to understand. So if we covet being jealous for the things that others possess, or at least that we don't possess, we're telling God that what he has given us is not good enough for us. Does that make sense? Coveting is telling God what you have given me is not enough for me. In other words, we're telling God that if we were him, we would do things differently. Well, if I had God's power, I would give myself that. I would let myself do that. Are you following the logic? We're saying that we should be God instead of him. And I don't think we think of it this way, but it's remarkable the connection that Paul's making here. Jealousy, coveting is actually idolatry. It's actually telling God that we're a better God than he is, that he's wrong, that we would do things better. And not only that, but we're telling God that the things that we desire are actually more important to us than he is because we are willing to jeopardize our relationship with him to have those things. We would rather have God's stuff than have God. That's at the root of idolatry, of sexual sin, of the whole, you could go through all 10 commandments and boil them down and that is really what's at the root. And that's exactly what idolatry is. When we desire things so much that we're willing to violate God's laws to have them, we've decided that we're better at being God than God is. And that is not the way God's children, his holy ones, should live. And that's why Paul concludes this section in verses five to seven like this. For you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is covetous, that is an, idol an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the son's disobedience. If that sounds familiar, go back to Ephesians chapter two. He uses the same phrase, sons of disobedience, just to describe those who are dead in their sin. Those whose lives are marked by a pattern of disobedience and the desires and impulses that they choose to follow will not go to heaven. Let that sink in for a moment. Those whose lives are marked by these things will not go to heaven. Because those who have been truly adopted by God are his saints, they are his holy ones. And they are marked instead by thankful submission to God's ways of living in increasing measure. They love God more than his gifts. They strive to imitate him as his loved children in how they live. Have you ever seen those show, that, that show on TLC um, called, what is it called? I have it written down. My 600 pound life. I never knew the name of it because it's always just like you turn on the TV and it happens to be playing and you're like, I'm going to change the channel. And then you don't, you keep watching it, right? We can all admit it. The show's interesting, right? We like, we, we enjoy that. Why? Well, not because of the horror stories, right? Like we're always like, oh man, that's terrible when they don't actually achieve the weight loss. But isn't it so cool to see someone who actually like loses all the weight? I mean, those episodes are, are great, right? Like you're like, I can do anything. Like after you finish that episode, you're like, we can accomplish so much. Um, because you see this person and it always shows the doctors like, you have to lose the weight. And then you have this montage of them like working out and it's them like walking on the treadmill and then it's them running on the treadmill and then they're doing all these crazy workouts where they're like flipping the tire you know or they do that thing with the ropes i've never actually seen that in real life i've only seen it on tv where they have the big ropes you know and they're like dude that must be an incredible workout and and they finally get to the end and they've lost all the weight and they do their way in and it's this incredible thing and then at the end of the episode they always show them i don't know why but they always show them wearing their old pants. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. And it's this picture of them, they, and they're holding their pants out like this. Now, you, so you can see um, how much their waistline is slimmed down, right, for comparison. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second that somebody loses all the weight, they do their final weigh-in, and they were successful, right? They, they made it. And then they just decide, you know what? I like these pants. I'm just gonna keep wearing them, 
right? And so they're walking around with their pants and their shirt that are like 20 sizes too big. Like you can just picture that in your mind. Their clothes are like falling off of them. It would look ridiculous, wouldn't it? Right, like you've lost all this weight, you're gonna go on wearing your old clothes. Now, I know that's a silly example, maybe, but it's kind of what Paul is talking about here. In the next section, which we're gonna talk about in a second, he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Last chapter, he said, put off the old self, put on the new self, right? made in the image of God's holiness. If we've been adopted by God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we've undergone a significant change. We're now called and empowered toward holy living, toward imitation of our Father. To continue living like we did before just doesn't make sense. Right? It's not appropriate anymore. It's not fitting. Do you, that's the analogy of that word. It's not fitting. It doesn't fit right anymore. So would you go on wearing your old clothes even though you lost 200 pounds? No, of course not, right? And that's Paul's point. Why would you go on living in the old patterns of darkness when you are now light? It doesn't make sense. It's not fitting anymore. Throw out the old wardrobe. Put on the new one. So the question for us is, do the old clothes still fit? Do the old clothes still fit? Right? If they do, you haven't really lost the weight, right? Like if somebody said, oh, well, you know, it fits the same as it did before. Okay, well, you got a problem there, don't you? The same thing is true for us. If our old ways of living still fit right, man, that is, that's dangerous. We're in dangerous territory because salvation brings drastic change in our life. And it doesn't happen overnight. And I, I want to offer encouragement because maybe there's somebody in the room and you're going, ah, <laughs> I'm in danger. I'm scared. But it's worth saying that this process feels a little bit, I think, like what weight loss feels like. It's long and it's difficult. And the work that God is doing in us to make us more and more like him, it takes time. It takes a lifetime. And even then, we don't fully get rid of all of that we used to be. Only in heaven are we made perfect. And he's chiseling away what we, what we were before. It doesn't happen overnight. Those old habits, those old ways of living, they're, they're not going to go down easily. Let me tell you that. But even if you're only one size smaller, only one, then you're moving in the right direction. Don't despair. It's not about how fast you lose the weight how long it takes to get there. It only matters that there's progress. It's a holy direction, not holy perfection. Is your life moving in the right direction? And then in verses 8 to 14, we find the second question or test. Are you living like light? Are you living like light? Okay, look again at verse 8. For at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If we've been adopted by God, we are his saints. We are also light in the Lord. Though we once were darkness. And I want you to notice that. He says, you were darkness. You were darkness. Not just that we produced darkness or we were enslaved to darkness. We actually were by nature darkness. But now, if we are in Christ, we are now light. Our nature has changed. We are different, fundamentally different than we used to be. And in verses 9 to 12, Paul contrasts what the life of light produces versus what the light of darkness brings. The life of darkness. See, life, light, they're too close. The life of darkness brings. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He goes on, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful, keyword, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And there he's talking about unbelievers, the sons of disobedience, those living in sin. It's shameful even to speak of what they do. This means that walking in 
the light, which flows out of our being made right with God, being born again, being given a new heart, raised to new life, whatever analogy you want to use from the Bible, it produces the fruit of experiencing goodness, righteousness, and truth in our lives and being a force bringing these things into the lives of others. Our lives are now defined by what is good and right and true, which is light. And according to verse 10, God is pleased with this kind of living, not in a performative kind of way, but in that he finds enjoyment in it. It's what he wants to see in us. But the life of darkness is unfruitful. Instead of goodness, righteousness, and truth, the works of darkness bring destruction, death, and you see it there in verse 12, shame. Shame. Man, don't you know, don't you know what shame our works of darkness spring into our lives? And then look again at verses 11 to 14 as a whole. He says, take no part the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's exactly what the word expose means. Right? What does light do? It reveals what's there. It reveals the ugliness of what is hidden in darkness. The word exposed here really means not, not just to make something visible, but actually it's a negative word. It means to show something to be wrong, to show something to be ugly, unpleasant, shameful. Now, Paul immediately says not to speak about what they do in secret. Did you catch that? He said, expose them, but don't talk about it. What? Okay. <laughs> That's not a contradiction, right? What he means is that not that we need to make it our daily effort to go around to people who are not Christians and say, how dare you do that? That's ugly. <laughs> That's horrible. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's not what Paul is talking about here. No, we should not enjoy speaking about those things, but rather we expose what is unfruitful by walking in what is good and right and true. A life of light, our behavior, our lifestyle is the light that shines to expose the darkness in the lives of others. By the way that we live, we reveal what is wrong with the way that we used to live. So that's the question. Does your life that you are now living, does your lifestyle demonstrate the wrongness, the sinfulness of the way that you used to live when you were in darkness. In other words, if the old you saw the way that you are living, would they be ashamed of what they were doing? And I want to zoom in here for just a moment on verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This verse, this is a unique verse in the Bible for a couple reasons. But here, Paul is actually telling us what, what evangelism is. What does it mean? How do we relate to those who are living in their sin? He's actually telling us the kinds of things we should say and the manner in which we should speak to someone who is still living in sin, living in the darkness. Now, no one knows exactly where Paul is getting this quotation. Therefore, it says, what is it? He doesn't tell us what it is, but that's really beside the point. I'm inclined to think he's actually getting this from the Old Testament, kind of weaving some passages together. The point that he's making is clear enough. This is how we should speak to those who are, apart, who are apart from Christ. We know that someone who is dead, who is asleep, who is in darkness, cannot make themselves light. It's like you walk into a dark room and you say, light. What's going to happen? 
Well, it's going to still be dark. And unless they have one of those things that you can clap and the light comes on, like that's your best bet, right? But no, you have to turn the switch on, right? There has to be something that changes. Your, our words are, are not going to compel someone to become light. We can't do that. It's not possible. But at least not for us. But it is possible for God. They, they can't get, just get themselves awake. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a heavy sleeper. If I don't have an alarm clock, I ain't waking up. Right? Like, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to sleep the day away. I'm just going to keep right on sleeping. Now, some of you are like, body alarm, I'm awake. All right? You're blessed. Okay? I'm not like that. I have to have the alarm clock to wake me up in the morning. And so, that's what somebody who's in their sin is like. They're not just going to wake up. And this is why the light of Christ must shine on them. The light of Christ is what wakes them up. Our words... It's not that our words don't matter, actually, because our words are actually what God uses to turn the lights on. Your words are the light switch that God might use in someone's heart to shine Christ on them. We can't make dead people come to life, but God can. And he does, though, through the witness of our living like light and our words speaking light to them. And the image that Paul paints here, it's, it's, like, it's like a mother gently waking their child from sleep. Right? It's, 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 it's tender and it's loving. We come along into someone's life who's living in utter darkness. They're asleep. They're dead, in fact, because of their sin. We don't just start saying, you need to get right. <laughs> don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see how wrong it is? You should be ashamed of yourself. No, no, no. No, we show them our lives. We show them the fruit of life that our life is producing. We ever gently and lovingly but clearly beckon them to wake up. If we can, we turn the lights on. Awake. We warn them. We plead with them. Wake up before it's too late. You're going to miss it. But we always do it in love because we don't want them to miss the great gift of God's holiness that he's given us. Maybe there's someone in this room who you're awake physically. Maybe you're not at this point. Maybe you're awake physically, but on the inside you're dead. you realize that you've never tasted the good and true fruit of light. Maybe you've seen it in others, but you've never experienced it yourself. If you're listening, it's time to wake up. Are the lights on? Are you blinded by the brightness of Jesus? If so, won't you cry out to him? Won't you say, Jesus, I am darkness, but will you make me light? I am dead, but will you make me alive again? Even now, wherever you're sitting or if you're listening somewhere else, you can do this. Don't wait for a song at the end of the sermon. Do it now. The alarm is going off. It's time to wake up. Run to him. Here's the third and final question or test. Are you living spirit-filled? Notice in verses 15 to 18, Paul lists for us three negative and positive pairs. I highlighted it. I don't want you to miss it. All right, so he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I wish, that's a whole sermon right there. I wish we could talk about that. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, positive. And these things are connected. Why? 
Again, let's follow the logic of Paul's thinking here, right? To be drunk is to lose our sense of reality, right? It's to lose our sense of self and the world around us. We lose our conscious minds. We become foolish and we, be we behave unwisely, right? Drunk people do drunk people things. And they usually live to regret them. To be filled with the Spirit, however, on the other hand, means that we have a sense of God's presence. We're in touch with his will. We make wise choices, right? Someone who's spirit-filled makes good decisions. Now, it's important to notice here, and I want to I say this, that being filled with the Holy Spirit, filled, is different than being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. The, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside a believer at conversion. All right, if you don't believe me, go back and read Ephesians 1. We've, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, Paul says. And this is immediate. It happens at the moment. We wake up. We're made alive again. The Spirit comes to live in us. And it is permanent. That is, the Holy Spirit never leaves you again. It's not like he comes and goes in waves. It's not like Saul in the Old Testament where it says the Holy Spirit departed from him. We don't have to worry about that. It's, it's immediate and it's permanent. However, being filled different word, being filled with the Holy Spirit is different. That's why Paul commands it here. He wouldn't command it if we couldn't not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? He has to tell us, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's talking to believers here. He's not talking to non-Christians. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is our lived experience of his presence. In other words, we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we sense that he's there. Right? Because we are indwelt by the Spirit, we intellectually, we know for a fact, I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit is here. But to know that as a fact is a different than to experience it. Right? Like, if my wife and I are in the house in different rooms, let's say, she's doing her thing, I'm working on something over here, I know my wife is there. But I don't hear her. I don't see her. I don't sense her being near. She's in a different room. Right? So indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, she's there. I know she's there. She hasn't left. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is knowing she's there, sitting next to her. I'm able to put my arm around her. I hear her talking. I sense her presence near me. She sneaks up behind me. She can't scare me. I know she's there. Right? It's that kind of thing. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's, it's feeling the sense that, that he's there. Paul goes on then to list four evidences of what being filled in the Holy Spirit produces. This is in verses 18 to 21. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why do we sing in worship? It's part of this right here. And I wish we could talk about how worship is not one, one direction. That's in another... Another conversation for another time. Okay, uh, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord. He really wants us to sing. Twice he mentions it. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it looks like this. Are you filled with the Spirit? You're asking yourself that question. How do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? Because we get real in our heads and we go, I think I feel him there, but I don't know if I feel him there. Am I, am I really filled or, or am I just making that up? And this is what Paul says. I want you to know. This is what it looks like. It affects the way that we address other believers in the church, specifically how we come together in worship. So the question is this. Are you excited by the opportunity to come to church and sing God's praises in this gathering of believers? Not just the idea of worship in general, but the idea of worship here with these people in this place. Or is it just a routine? It's also seen in how we address God in worship. Do you joyfully and meaningfully sing to the Lord in your worship? Do you mean the words that you say? Do you even sing at all? Or do you simply move your lips? Third, it's seen in how we address our circumstances in life. What's your attitude 
toward life? Are you grateful? Are you complaining? And fourth, it's seen in how you serve others in the church. There's a lot to unpack there. But are you giving, not just receiving, in the church? These are the marks or evidences of the spirit-filled life. Someone who is spirit-filled is excited to share in worship. They are excited to offer worship. They're grateful to God regardless of the circumstances, and they're excited to live in life-giving community with other believers. And notice how every one of these is other-centered. Did you catch that? Nowhere does Paul say, you'll know you're spirit-filled when your quiet time is amazing. No, I actually think our devotional life with the Spirit, privately, is what fuels being Spirit-filled. But it's evidenced externally in how we relate to other people. And while your personal devotional life is certainly crucial to becoming Spirit-filled, nobody is denying that. The result of a Spirit-filled person is not how good your quiet times are going. The question is, how good is church going for you? And that's where we see the real evidence of this filling of the Spirit in someone's Life. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second that my wife beats me home from work one day, and so uh, she starts making dinner, because that's kind of, that's usually what we do. Like, whoever gets home first is usually the person to start it. And so, by the time I get home, she's kind of, you know, she's, she's in the middle of making dinner, and she just tells me, oh, it's going to be ready in about 15 minutes, or whatever. And I say, okay, that's great, babe. And I go to the cabinet immediately. Go to the cabinet. I pull out some chips, some cookies, and I go sit on the couch. And she goes, what are you doing? And I say, well, yeah, this is actually not, not, not that much of a stretch, okay? And, she's, and I say, well, you know, I've had a long day at work. A lot of crazy stuff happened today, and I'm just, I'm starving. I just need, I just need, I just need something to hold me over. She's like, it's going to be like 15 minutes. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll be ready for dinner, right? And so I proceed to devour <laughs> chips and cookies and all this other stuff. And then what's going to happen? You guys know the end of the story. We sit down for dinner, and I'm like, I'm not that hungry, you know? I wouldn't say that because I know. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, I wouldn't say that, but I'm going to think to myself, I shouldn't have eaten all of that. Right? Why? Because I've ruined my dinner, right? It's classic what your parents tell you when you're growing up. Don't eat junk, you're going to ruin your dinner. And this, this is exactly what Paul has in mind here, right? Like what, what is it that causes us to not be spirit-filled? What's keeping us from that? Well, the problem, I would suggest, might not be that you don't have a balanced meal in front of you. The problem might not be that you need a, a new Bible reading plan or you need a new book to read in your quiet time or you need to shake things up in your quiet time. That might not actually be the problem. Maybe the, maybe the problem is that we fill ourselves up with all of these other things so that when we come to God, there is no room left. There's no room left. Right? And it's not just bad things, right? We could, we could carry this analogy further and we could say that if I eat all this sugary junk food before dinner, I'm actually not really full. I just think I'm full because I filled up on junk. But even if I eat a healthy snack, let's say, I eat a handful of almonds or, or I eat some fruit or something. Nevertheless, when I come to the table, I'm not going to be hungry anymore. I filled myself up, even if it's on good things, on things that might maybe are worthy of eating, but they've replaced the thing that I actually need. I need a meal. I don't need snacks. And this is, this is what Paul is talking about here, right? Paul tells us in chapter 4 last week that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. You won't be full of the Holy Spirit if you're grieving him in how you live. If you're letting sin remain and fester in your life, where is unconfessed sin in your life? You don't think it's connected, but it's very connected to your devotional life and being spirit-filled. And then where is there distraction in your life? Five minutes of 
undistracted prayer, Bible reading, or worship is far better for your soul than 30 minutes of distracted, whatever you're doing. I promise you that. So I, I would just encourage you, when you come to the Lord, leave your phone in the other room. The emails, the texts, the calls, the notifications, they can wait. There was a time before cell phones when people couldn't reach you, even if they wanted to. It's okay. Leave it in the other room. Put the to-do list away. Those things can wait a few minutes. Because we, we tend to think to ourselves that this thing that I need to get done or this email that I need to answer or this thing that's on my mind is more real than God is because I can't see him. He's, he's far away in my mind, out of sight, out of mind. But in reality, the Holy Spirit is living in you. He is just as real as your to-do list, your notifications, and all of those other things that are pulling you away. And maybe what we need to do is come before him undistracted. Just a few minutes a day. Okay, so if you're in Christ, you're God's child, you're one of his children, and God wants to give the gift of holiness to you. He wants to share in the joy of holiness with you. God, God is telling us this stuff because this is what he wants for us. He wants us to be spirit-filled. He wants us to be holy. He doesn't want to make us do it. He wants us to have it in our lives. This is what it means to be in the family of God. And that is a wonderful privilege because we've been adopted as God's children, we will imitate our Father in pursuing holiness in our lives. The question is, will you? Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.